Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. by me, Nicole Auerbach. I am joined today, as always, by The Athletic senior writer, Chris Vanini. Chris, hello and um, congratulations. I know it's been a big week for you. You have cut off an important relationship in your life. Yes, I have cut the cord. I am now a streamer uh, through and through when it comes to watching television. Uh, I'd stuck with cable for a long time, and for, for, for a number of reasons, including price and various other things, but ultimately... It was time to make the move to join a, a lot of other people uh, who have been telling me to do this for years, and I got a lot of messages uh, last night after I did this, but uh, we are here. Literal years. Literally years. Actually, but don't you feel better about this? I know you're so stressed about like the delay in between, you know, especially, I guess, live, people at a game live tweeting, you're never going to really be able to avoid that, but the sooner we all stream every game, then we're all on the same delay. And then you don't have to worry about Twitter spoiling anything. That's basically what it is. I basically get, I notice I got plays ahead of other people at the time, but look, ultimately like this is where everything goes. Now this is where the the future of sports is. Uh, I mean, heck we've on the day we're recording this, we've got a top 10 college basketball game coming up later tonight on ESPN plus. So the reality is, You've got to be in streaming in some form to watch college sports these days. And now I am fully jumped in, and I, I got a lot of congratulations from, from you and, and, and other friends. So I'm excited for it as we head into the offseason. Just to peel back the curtain for a second, we have a group chat. It's it, it originated because of The Bachelor. I will say a lot of people have fallen off. It's gotten stale. We now watch other dating shows in our offseason. But everyone has been trying to get Chris to make this jump for over a year now. He waffles between it. He tries to go back to the cable people and get them to cut more money off the deal. Anyway, we're just we're very proud of you. You're growing up in front of our own eyes. So congratulations, Chris. Wow. Uh, very proud of you. This is the first step of your off season. It's funny. I was thinking about this all week. It was like, okay, now it's time to actually take care of all the things in my life that I put off, especially over the latter part of the season. So like cleaning out a closet and getting a bunch of things fixed. I had to fix like a drawer, all these different things. And this is like number one on your off season to do list. So I am very proud of you. Um, and we have a lot to get to. So want to make sure we have time for all of that. As a reminder, subscribe, rate and review us on the Andy Staples show and friends feed. Andy and Ari always have something cooking, especially in the off season when they can go even more off the rails than usual. So you will want to stay tuned to this feed throughout the off season. On today's episode of Power Hour, we will break down everything you need to know in college football in an hour or less. So, Chris, let's dive in. And we'll start, as we always do, with the Power Five. In true Power Hour fashion, we will give ourselves about a minute to cover one of the hottest topics in college football before the buzzer sounds. And it's time to move on to the next 
we've had a lot of scheduling news, so we're going to split this up into a couple of the different Power 5 topics. So I will let you take it away, Chris. Number one, the Big 12 schedule is out. And this is a conference going from... A conference named the Big 12 is going from 10 teams to 14 teams. So that uh, college college sports tradition of numbers not making any sense uh, continues. But a lot going on here. We've got Texas traveling to Houston and hosting BYU. We've got Oklahoma traveling to Cincinnati and BYU and hosting UCF. Uh, we've got uh, Cincinnati, UCF, and Houston playing each other in Big 12 play. Of all the conference schedules this year, this is definitely the most interesting one because we've got so much movement with all the various teams involved. And yeah, that came out on Tuesday and a lot of interesting games. Are, are there any that stuck out to you? Well, I think it's like what you just said. I mean, it's going to be some of the fun matchups with some of the new members and, and certainly seeing Texas and Oklahoma having to make trips to some of the new members uh, as a nice parting gift as they continue to, to sit through this lame duck phase of their membership in the Big 12. But yeah, I think in general, this is just the most interesting one because A, we don't know how long this league will be at 14 members. And it's just a lot of pairings that you never really thought you would see as conference matchups. So um, I think it's those games. Obviously, you know, you circle Bedlam, you circle some of those rivalry games that you know you're going to lose when Oklahoma and Texas go off to the SEC. but, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly excited for, like, Oklahoma at BYU. I, I just think Provo is an awesome college football environment. So I love seeing a Blue Blood make that trip um, and, and things of that nature. I think UCF is going to be a fun one. We know and love that fan base. And so they're going to get really amped for these games. So I, I just think it's going to be really cool and interesting and fun to see and um, just very weird. Because we're gonna, it's gonna be one of those where we do double takes and we're like, oh yeah, this is a this is a conference game. Um, but it's fun to get schedules because you can at least start to figure out which weekends you think are gonna be the crazy ones, which ones look like they're gonna be lulls, uh, and then you go from there. And obviously, I think people are gonna be pretty amped also to see Cincinnati and Houston and how well they match up with some of these opponents as well. Um, so number two is is let's flip over to the ACC. They put out their football schedule. Um, The big one there is the one that everyone's highlighting, circling, uh, underlining Florida State at Clemson on September 23rd. That game is going to be massive. I think, you know, whether or not you you fully buy into where Florida State is coming off a 10-win season, they bring back everybody. You've already got a Heisman campaign for Jordan Travis, and you are coming into a year where the ACC has gotten rid of divisions. So you don't have Florida State and Clemson both in the Atlantic. So this could be a preview of the ACC championship game. And I think depending on how the offseason goes, it's possible that Florida State becomes the preseason favorite and not Clemson. But this will be the big one for, obviously, new offensive coordinator Garrett Riley, Cade Klubnick. This is the big test for for Clemson early in the season for us to see if Dabo's offseason moves have actually worked. Yeah, Florida State's schedule is really interesting because not only do they play Clemson in week four on the road, they play LSU in week one in Orlando. I mean, those are mm-hmm. that's two top 15 games probably that you're playing, both of them not in your home stadium. And then they also close the season with Miami and Florida, two big rivals, in the final three weeks. So, you know, that's the team we're going to be paying a lot of attention to. You've got... Uh, Sam Hartman, now at Notre Dame, playing Wake Forest on November 18th. 
You've got uh, North Carolina going to Clemson in Week 12. And notably, Florida State, again, that schedule, they don't play North Carolina. So they don't have to play Drake May. And uh, it makes it all that more interesting, again, when you don't have divisions. Technically, Florida State-Clemson doesn't mean as much because it could be a rematch. But the flip side is the loser still has a shot. And, and that's ultimately what you want. Uh, rest in peace to, to Coastal Chaos. Uh, we never quite got the what, six or seven-way tie that we wanted to have. Um, no, but we still got seven different champions in seven years. Yes. You will never match that never. In, in any other division in any sport because you will never have that kind of parity. But I'm with you. I actually think that this the whole going divisionless um, comes at a perfect time for Florida State trying to take the next step. We talked about them a lot over the season and, and the benchmarks that they were clearing and, and true signs of progress, but – I think it's massive because, like you said, yeah, it's not as big a deal because it doesn't determine the rep in the ACC championship game. But I think it's super important for a measuring stick game and then to have an opportunity, if you are to lose this game, to still play for an ACC championship game. That's important. Um, but, yes, rest in peace to the Coastal. Best division in sports, bar none. It was my favorite. I'm very sad about it. Um, and it hasn't quite sunk in that it's going away. I know we all talk about playoff expansion and the impact on the schedule, but really the most impactful part of it is what we're seeing in the ACC, which is getting rid of divisions. That is going to be the biggest adjustment for fans, for, for everybody. If you paid attention to the Pac-12 last year and you knew all the different scenarios that could happen going into the final two weeks in terms of who could get to that championship game, we're going to get that every year now, and I think that's going to make the, the end of the season a lot more exciting for fans. Yeah, and one one last quick point on that, too, because, you know, we, we started to see it. The Pac-12 got rid of their divisions, but they still had the scheduling that way. But it's just going to reframe the way that this whole thing works. Like, these games are going to be better. Um, you know, they're going to be more interesting if you want to go as a fan. We've just seen a lot of lopsided leagues. And so um, that's going to be awesome, and that's just an important thing to remember, especially as we're looking at some of these other conferences and their configurations and moving membership um just remember acc does not have divisions this year just try to keep that in your brain because yep. we're gonna forget the pac-12 also obviously does not have divisions the big 12 does not uh the mountain west this year will not have divisions so we're basically down to the big 10 the sec which still have to go through their realignment uh in, in a little bit of g5 so a lot of scheduling changes still to come number three Ryan Grubb, the offense coordinator at Washington, uh, is not taking the same job at Alabama, as was reported by our Christian Capel and some other people on Tuesday. Uh, Grubb was, uh, got an extension and a raise after the season for a very good job, led by you know, Michael Penix Jr. at quarterback. He interviewed for the A&M job, didn't take it, got another raise to $2 million a year, uh, and he's interviewed at Bama, but he's sticking at, at Washington with Michael Penix Jr. coming back next year. Um, he is believed to be the highest paid assistant in Pac-12 history. And this is, I think, huge for the Pac-12 to keep a really good assistant coach with a really good quarterback and what should be a really strong league next year. So uh, this is very interesting to see. And so uh, Alabama still looking for offensive coordinator, still looking for defensive coordinator. It's it's definitely notable because we've talked a lot about this, about the financial realities and sort of the stratification with the Big Ten and the SEC. And, and it's just going to compile, you know, it's going to build on itself year in and year out. 
when those schools are bringing in more money. But one of the ways that we thought we were going to see this is in terms of what would have been lateral movement, but would be a step up in terms of what assistance could be paid. Um, and I don't know, just maybe like the perception of these different jobs. So big deal for the Pac-12 to not lose an assistant to the SEC. And as you mentioned, Michael Penix Jr. coming back, Washington's going to be really good, going to be a, uh, I think we're going to talk about the, the Pac-12 race a lot, I think, this offseason because it's going to be fun. you got great quarterbacks. But also, I, I do think some of these dark horse teams that we saw break through or at least kind of set the table for next year, like Washington, Penn State, and Florida State, we're going to be talking about them as dark horse playoff teams as well. So big deal for Washington. And I remain super intrigued and super interested to see where Nick Saban goes with both of those positions, he's he's obviously had such a great touch in hiring and reframing and rehiring and, and plugging and, and elevating and plucking people away for these positions for so many years. Um, but this does feel like a very pivotal offseason in Tuscaloosa. So just remain glued to the computer screen, waiting to see who he ultimately hires as OC and DC. Yes, and uh, defense coordinator, the names that continue to kind of be in the mix, Jeremy Pruitt, obviously former assistant, and Todd Grantham, who is currently an analyst on, on the Alabama staff. That has drawn a, a lot of reaction in a lot of circles mm-hmm. over the possibility of Todd Grantham, who had a, uh, uh, a, a, a tenure at Florida that was uh, often criticized, same when he was at Georgia as well. Uh, I don't know how exactly that will go over, but the search continues. Okay, more coaching news at number four. It, it is late January, early February. This is the main source of news in our world. Um, this was an interesting one. Josh Gaddis fired as Miami's offensive coordinator. And, you know, this has been one of the hot names in the coaching carousel for the last couple of years. One year ago, he won the Broyles Award, which is given to the nation's top assistant for the work that he did at Michigan, getting the Wolverines to the college football playoff, beating Ohio State, doing all of that for the first of the two years that they did. Then he goes to Miami, joins Mario Cristobal, and that offense was just really putrid. Um, You know, you you put some notes here in the doc, but they scored more than 30 points just twice against FBS teams. Um, It it was a team that we thought was going to be very well positioned for you know, just a very solid first year for Mario, considering bringing back Tyler Van Dyke and then having different pieces. And that did not, that the offense regressed. It, it was, it was painful at times. It was, it was not productive. And I think that it's a late coaching change, certainly to make that decision at the end of January, because not obviously Miami wasn't playing any games in the last month, month and a half. But I think that there is a lot of pressure on these coaches, even just one year into a tenure to make changes um, and to to change things, particularly we've seen a lot of coordinator movement this year because you need to signal that it was not acceptable, that you need to do something different. And you need, maybe it's a scheme, maybe it's a spark, maybe it's a relationship with the players, but you got to do something. And Miami clearly needed to do that. They've got momentum with the recruiting class. Um, and, you know, a year ago this time, everyone was extremely excited about Mario and what he's building. And you got to fix the offense. Yeah, I, I mean, looking back at, man, Miami's offense the second half of the season, like, it was so bad. I mean, they had, what, I think eight turnovers against Duke. They scored yes. 14 points yes. against Virginia in a four-overtime game that was ugly. It, it wasn't clear what was the low point. This, that was the problem. The next week they scored three points against Florida State. 
They did have 35 in a win against Georgia Tech, but they ended uh, with 10 points against Clemson and a 42 to 16 loss to Pitt with a bowl game on the line. This team, remember, this team went five and seven, uh, a team that people thought might contend for the ACC potentially or something. And yeah, remember how much money Miami put into getting Mario Cristobal. They paid millions to buy him out. They gave him a really high salary. They gave him a huge assistant salary pool. Miami is investing in football like never before, and you're seeing that especially in the NIL space. Um, My question here is how much of this is on Cristobal and just the way he runs his program? Because you and I did a story a year ago, which was uh, agents reacting to coaching hires. And and what do they think? And more than one mentioned to us, hey, if Mario Cristobal is such a great developer of talent, great recruiter, all this kinds of thing, how come he can't get a quarterback? And because remember, he inherited Justin Herbert when he took over as head coach there. And Herbert was okay, he was good, but it, it's not like that was something that w- was developed. You know, his, his, his offense coordinator, Marcus Arroyo, went to UNLV. Oregon fans weren't sad to see him, him go. Mario Cristobal comes into Miami, and you've got Tyler Van Dyke, who a lot of people are thinking NFL prospect here. He has a terrible season. He gets benched. So, like, I'm just wondering, like, what is it about Cristobal's program that they have not been able to get the quarterback position right? And that'll be a big question for whoever the next offensive coordinator is. Number five. It will be. Oh, sorry. One last thought. Um, On that point, I think it's also always an interesting dynamic with an offensive-minded coach hiring an offensive coordinator. How much involvement do you have? How much, how do you work with that person? Um, so all of that's interesting. And again, Josh Gaddis also is now out looking for a job. There's a lot of open, prominent coordinator positions right now, and it's February and, you know, there's still significant turnover still to come. Yes. Especially with the NFL changes happening now as well. Number five, uh, something that came up in the news recently, but it's not actually all that new, which is, so will the NCAA finally kind of start investigating schools for NIL violations. Um, it's, it's a rule that was passed in October where basically there doesn't need to be a smoking gun for the NCAA to, to go in. They can, you, they can use various things they hear or see reported and basically say a school has to prove it false. And it's, the most, it's potentially the most aggressive we've ever seen the NCAA when it comes to investigating these things. Um, it, it, it's again, it's drawn a lot of reaction. Nicole, what did you kind of make of, of all this? Yeah, it was, it, it's going to be interesting when this comes to a head, right? Because I think we've been waiting since the NIL era began for the NCAA to come down hard on somebody for violating rules. And that hasn't happened yet. And this change, this tweak, it's, it's a couple of things, right? We, we've seen the transformation committee, one of the things that they did early on was recommend changes to speed up the enforcement process to actually have some teeth behind this, right? We've also seen interpretations and NIL guidance to try to say, hey, here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed. And this was in both areas. We've heard it from both of them, but again, it kind of slipped through the cracks. Um, and it's, it's really only going to be something when we see it in action and someone gets penalized for it but it really is saying like the burden of proof is on the school to prove that they're following the rules so when when they say like media reports or that you know presumed 
guilt almost if, if people are saying it or whatever. I don't think that's necessarily like, oh, there's rumors on a message board. But what I see is we've had a number of prominent boosters say a lot of things on the record. You've had boosters yes. bragging about visiting with recruits or signing deals with recruits. That's against the rules. Yes. Like that is specifically against the rules. So you can probably, again, we don't know until this actually happens, but you could probably just take that and say, okay, now you go to the school and you say, now you have to prove to us that this isn't what's happening and that you're actually following all the rules. And so that's where, again, I think like the presumption of guilt versus the presumption of innocence and where the burden of proof is. So again, we'll see. A lot of people have been frustrated for a lot, a long time waiting for the NCAA to do something to prove, to say that these are rules that are supposed to be followed. And a lot of people have been operating that they were never going to really crack down on this. So we'll see. We'll see. But it is in the news. Um, and they have beefed up. The NCAA has beefed up the enforcement staff. There's obviously also new president coming and there's a lot of changes coming at, at the NCAA level. So we'll see what happens. This is going to be something to absolutely track this off season. This was such a newsy day. So we're going to add a bonus number six here for the power five. Um, P6. And it's really Michael, Michael Resco is loving hearing that we've got a P6 uh, this week. The power six, the power six this week. Shout out to the AAC. Uh, if Mike's listening, we'd love to take AAC helmets. If you've still got those power six helmets, now that you, you know, that we can go back to FBS and the playoffs getting expanded and we don't have to fight that fight all the time, we'll happily take a P6 helmet. But um, the number six here is just kind of hopefully. I'm going to jinx it by saying this. Closing a chapter on the Jim Harbaugh NFL flirtation for this offseason. Maybe not. There's still a couple of NFL jobs open. But the Broncos have hired Sean Payton. And that was the one that we know they circled back and met with Jim Harbaugh in Ann Arbor last week per Adam Schefter. Um, and he met with them despite a couple weeks ago saying, I'm staying at Michigan and all of this. So the twisting and turns and the curves and all of the things related to this, hopefully wrapping up and hopefully we know for sure that Jim Harbaugh is just staying put at Michigan. However, weirder things have happened, um, but did just want to put in here as the power six that the Broncos have a head coach and it is not Jim Harbaugh. Yes, and it was notable in that Schefter report that basically a Broncos source has said essentially like, this is probably it for Harbaugh. This is probably his last chance. Do we believe that? I certainly do not. <laughs> I think as long as there's a head coaching opening, as long as Jim Harbaugh is still winning at Michigan, people are going to be interested in him, and clearly he is going to be willing to listen. So, you know, just we just wanted to throw that in there. And... You know, it's it's interesting the phrasing of like, is this his last opportunity or not? You know, we talked about this from day one when you know the first go around with Jim Harbaugh and the NFL happened this cycle. How much patience do people at Michigan have for this? Right, like this was something coming out of last season. He basically had said that he wasn't going to do this every year, and then here we are. We did it again this year. So. Hopefully, we're not doing it a third year. Hopefully, we're not doing it next year as well. I guess not even a third. We're past that, but. These are going up until signing day in February. So this is very late in the cycle. And I would imagine that everyone who's works with Harbaugh, who plays for him, who's being recruited by him. I don't know how much patience you have to do this in an entire another cycle next year. So we'll see. 
again, hopefully the door is closed on that storyline. We don't know 100% for sure. But in happier news, it's time for the happy hour. This is a part of the show where we talk about something that is bringing us joy, something that we are, um, are liking, having fun with, making fun of. Uh, there's a lot of different options and different ways to go here. So, Chris, I'll give you my happy hour is for people on college football Twitter and NFL Twitter who go nuts for measurements. It is your time of year. It is the time of year where we get to find out how tall people really are, how much they weigh, what their wingspan is, the size of their hands. Yes. The Senior Bowl began. It's underway this week. So for the next few months and the lead up to the draft, we get a ton of measurements that I personally could have lived without knowing, you know, how long someone's wingspan is, but always good to find out who's got, you know, some freak attributes. And also, I don't know, sometimes people freak out about a quarterback having small hands. I, I enjoy it. I roll with it. So happy, happy for uh, cheers and celebratory wishes to all of the people who love measurement Twitter. Yes, I'm just begging, I'm just hoping that we get something as fun as Kenny Pickett hand size debate uh, that we got last year or uh, Russell Wilson height, you know, from a, from a number of, of years ago. Just, mm, just the That was best, a good one. Just the All-timer. best stuff. I, I, I love how player heights are written like 6,004 and only if you're really paying attention you have any idea how, what that actually means. Uh, all the shorthand terms and all that stuff. It's it's the best. I have a I have a pre- I have a prediction for for something that we're we're gonna dwell on. Do you think I, I feel like Bryce Young's frame will be something? Not just height, but like his frame. It is, and I I don't remember where I saw, but but he is um he is among the shorter quarterbacks on there. I think the shortest. I, I don't remember if this was Senior Bowl, if this was something else, but. It said Kyler Murray was basically one of the uh, shortest arms. It was arm length. I, I think that's what it was. I think. And in, in, uh, oh, I was gonna say I, I think Kyler is a little bit more built, like a little bit sturdier. I, I sort of wonder that about Bryce Young. So again, I hate a lot of the draft narrative, but some of this stuff is dumb. And I do think, like, if you watch Bryce Young, you know how talented he is. You know that he's a magician. It doesn't matter. That is a hundred percent going to be something that draft people talk about, though. Yes. Uh, elsewhere in happy hour. Um, our colleague Stuart Mandel did his annual coaching grades, which I know everybody just kind of loves doing that stuff. He went all the way up from A-plus for Deion Sanders down to an F for Trent Dilfer. And so I figured, Nicole, you and I here would, would take a minute and say, maybe what, what, were our, what do we think were the two or, two or three best coaching hires? And I'm going to preface this by saying we have no clue what works and what doesn't work. <laughs> I do this every November. I do a regrade of five years ago. What, what did everybody grade the coaches five years ago when they were hired, and what are they now? And i got to say the hit rate is generally not good. You had Tom Herman get all A's when he went to Texas. You had Charlie Strong get all Scott A's. Scott Frost. Scott Frost got all A's. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there was someone gave uh, Jeff Tedford an F when he got hired at Fresno State. Herm Edwards got a bunch of Fs, and I know that didn't end well, but he actually had an okay tenure, all things considered. And, and so these things, you never really know who's going to work and who's not going to work. But with that said, Nicole, who do you think? Oh, you're going to make me go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first if you want me to. 
Um, well, well, we can go back and forth because I, I do want to hear like who you think was the best hire, but also like second best. And yes. couple. So why don't you go first with the best hire of the second? I'm starting with Luke Fickle at Wisconsin. It feels like the most natural fit for all kinds of reasons. Fickle's a Midwest guy. He turned Cincinnati into a playoff team. He knows the Big Ten. And not only that, he's also adapting to, I'll say adapting to the times, but he's going outside his box a little bit and hiring Phil Longo as offensive coordinator who could open things up more that we haven't seen at Wisconsin in forever. They brought in three transfer quarterbacks. They've got really good running back in, in, in Brayden Allen. This just made absolute complete sense for everybody involved, and I think Wisconsin nailed this. I think it was really smart of Wisconsin to – go out of what it has always done. A lot of people thought that they were just going to promote Jim Leonard from the interim and kind of be what Wisconsin has always been. I think this move shows that they think that their ceiling can be higher and that they can contend for national championships and not just Big Ten West titles. And so I'm with you. I think it's a really interesting hire um, and, and probably maybe the most significant in terms of a total shift and also the way that they play is going to look very different than it used to. Also, Fickle was graded mostly B's and C's when he got hired at Cincinnati. So That was probably because of the, the interim stint yep. at Ohio State, I would assume. Yeah, and he, yeah. And he left that okay, as an A-plus, so, A-plus as he went out. So my, uh, my best hire, I think, is the one that was uh, written in the stars for as, as any time that Jeff Brown wanted to come back to Louisville, that he was probably going to be able to come back to Louisville. So that was a, this was a hire that happened incredibly quickly. It was obvious. You said natural fit for Luke Fickle to Wisconsin. How about natural fit? Like literally hometown hero coming back to your school, the way that you want to throw the ball around, do things offensively at Louisville will totally work in the ACC. Um, I've just very much enjoyed watching Jeff Brom's teams, enjoyed uh, the players he recruited at Purdue, enjoyed the quarterbacks, the development. Obviously, he always takes a lot of walk-ons. It's just fun. And I think that brand of football and what he does and then obviously all his relationships coming in as the hometown guy, it's it, it's an easy, easy fit win, easy good coach win. He's coming off a trip to the Big Ten championship game. So I think to me that that is the best hire of the group. And it was also probably the easiest one because it was the most obvious and it was something even a year prior, he probably said some things that you probably shouldn't say publicly about how, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really want to go there. It just like the timing wasn't right last time this job opened. So, you know, he's finally there. And also Purdue knew that that was probably going to happen. And, you know, they had their search ready to go as well. Now I've gone back and forth. So Stu gave Dion Sanders an A+. And said, basically, win or lose, like, this is already a home run hire for Colorado. And a lot of people disagreed with that. Other, others agreed with it. Look, Colorado's got more, as much talent as it's ever had right now with the recruiting coming in. People are talking about Colorado. People are interested in Colorado. We are talking about Colorado. I get invited on radio shows and people are asking me about Colorado. Is it true? Do we think win or lose, this is a home run for Colorado? No, no. I, I don't think you can say that someone is a home run, even if they lose. I understand the argument that people are talking about Colorado. And I think that the argument for hiring Dion is, you know, you can't, you can only go up from here. 
no one's been buzzing or thinking about Colorado football much. And now we are on a almost daily basis. Now I get all of those arguments, but there's no way that if they win one game, like they just did last year, or they, you know, are, are struggling as we've seen them do. And if like these recruits don't work out or guys transfer out, there's no way that we're going to view that as a win just because, you know, they had one off season of media attention. So Again, I understand why they did it. I understand the, the benefits of, of the buzz and the attention and the Amazon Prime series and all these other things. But he absolutely has to win before you can say it's a home You know, I, I was initially thinking that too. But the more I think about it, I think the amount of money that is now being put into Colorado football, the amount of uh, donor support, season ticket sales, people are paying attention to – Colorado and going want to go to Colorado games that never happened before that even if it doesn't but it's it's been one one off season Chris, not so. even one off season it's been three months not even it's been like a <laughs> yeah month. right it's been like a month. yeah so but like I think I, I think by hiring him they have tapped into something that they desperately needed to tap into that even if this doesn't work You've got a new group of donors you can uh, you can reach out to the next time something comes up, and I think ultimately this will elevate Colorado, even if it fails, because Colorado was at the absolute bottom right now. I don't know if that means a plus or not, but I do think the floor has been raised in a way that even if it doesn't work out, I will say one other um, on a, on a happier note, uh, another hire that I think is a really smart one and a really good one that I think is going to work uh, for here for happy hour is Matt rule to Nebraska. Um, if anyone's been following him on Twitter, you've seen all the emojis. We've seen all of the excitement that he's had on the road, recruiting and traveling and doing all of these things. He is such a great college football coach. Um, you know, I think a lot of us on our staff know him very well and it's spent a lot of time with him. And he's such a people person. He's just a real genuine person. When you spend time with him, you talk to him. And it just feels like he's pressed all the right buttons since getting to Nebraska and getting back to college, even though he, you know, times have changed a bit with, with NIL implementation and the transfer portal and all these things in the last couple of years when he was out of the college game. It feels like he's hitting all the right notes for what Nebraska needs and what they need to focus on, the fundamentals, getting talent, getting players, his relationships with coaches in Texas, which has been a problem since Nebraska has left the Big 12, is some of those talent bases of their best teams they haven't been able to get those players in the same way. So I, I just think that that was a really good hire. I, I think I probably would say that about Matt Rule going anywhere, but especially into a school in the Big 10 with just his roots and, and the kind of person he is. And I just think that's exactly what Nebraska needs because you don't need someone who is just going to, you know, talk about the glory days and talk about championships. You need someone who can go back down to the fundamentals. And I think that that's where rule is. And he just seems very reinvigorated by recruiting again and the player development and just the influence that you can have over players 18 to 23 that you don't have over professionals in the NFL. So I think that that is going to work out. I don't know what that's going to look like in year one, but I think, it was the right hire and the right types of build, the, the building blocks that they need for Nebraska to turn it around. Yes, that's. By the way, if anybody hasn't read uh, Max Olson's really good story in the Athletic about how the Matt Rule hire came together, highly recommend you check that out. They had come together, they'd gone apart, came back together. It's, it's really interesting how that worked out. And yeah, Matt Rule is still 
doing the Texas thing. He's, he's hiring people with Texas high school ties. For those who don't know, obviously when he went to Baylor, he hired Joey McGuire and some other Texas high school coaches to that staff. And even after he took the Panthers job, he showed up to the football coaches uh, convention and went to the Texas high school event just to basically thank all the coaches there. And even when he was gone the last few years, Texas high school, Texas high school coaches could not rave enough about the job Matt Rule did coming in, embracing them, and that ultimately helped Rule turn Baylor around so quickly. And we may see the same in Nebraska now. All right, let's get to our On the Rock segment. This is a part of the show where we talk it out. Uh, there's friction somewhere in this sport, and we are here to help work through it. Uh, there's a few rocky relationships that are in the news this week. Um, but we're going to start with Stetson Bennett. Uh, he was in the news this week for the wrong reasons. And, uh, you know, it, it's just it, it's one of those stories that it, it's frustrating and it's, it's, it's a bummer to report, especially on the heels of winning a national championship and all of the absolutely um, deserved celebration that he's had at back-to-back national champions, most outstanding player. Um, Stetson Bennett, you know, deserves all of the accolades that he's gotten. But he made headlines this week for the wrong reasons. Um, he was he was charged with public intoxication um, and found by the police in Dallas on the street at 6 a.m. It was also tough because of the timing. I mean, this is the same week that the Senior Bowl is going on in Mobile, Alabama. And you have all these players hyper-focused on their futures and their careers and what they want to do and doing all the right things. And then you have Setson Bennett, who's 25, we talk a lot about his age, and he knows better. And he is in the headlines for all the wrong reasons and an embarrassing uh, situation. And so, you know, it's it's just one of those situations where, you know, we've all really enjoyed watching Setson's career, talked a lot about where he could go in the NFL. Kirby Smart took time after they won the second national championship in his post-game press conference to say, hey, NFL teams, look at this guy. Look at how he checks down. Look at how he sees defenses. Someone needs to take a chance on him higher than people think, and he's going to have a long career in the pros. And then you have something like this happening this week in Dallas. So um, just just disappointing and, and frustrating to see, I think, for, for Georgia fans and for fans of Stetson. Yeah, the, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when I, when I read this, when I saw this, was like Baker Mayfield getting a public intoxication arrest when he was back at Oklahoma. But the difference there was Baker wasn't 25 years old. You know, this, this isn't really the point where you say, oh, it's a young college kid made a mistake or whatever. Um, this is also coming at a time during the Senior Bowl that Stetson Bennett opted not to go to. So when, when your, when your um, credentials as, as, a, as, a, as a prospect are being doubted when they're up in the air, when there are questions about your ability to do it at the next level. These kinds of things are, are going to hurt you a lot more. It's not like, oh, man, this guy's the number one pick. You know, he, he had this arrest, but you, you can't deny his talent. Uh, people are going to look for any holes they can with Sesson Bennett, and this gives them uh, another one. And I know this also comes a couple weeks after the, the parade, you know, when, when he was criticized for being on his phone and, he, you know, he tweeted that it was about playing the music or whatever like that. I, like, I don't know. It, maybe that was nothing. Maybe none of this really matters. But um, 
And look, the guy just won two straight national championships as a former walk-on. He can have some fun. You know, we all had fun. We all enjoyed it when he went on, what, Good Morning America the day after the championship game last year and, and looked like he had uh, had a good night the night before. But um, 6 a.m., man? Like, yikes. That's um, a lot of questions about that. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's worth reading um, a piece on, on The Athletic uh, that Jeff Schultz wrote. It has a lot of very interesting and insightful quotes from Aaron Murray, obviously former Georgia quarterback himself, and he's close with this. And he was just talking about how he needs to take it as a wake-up call and that he knows that, you know, you're going to – Setson's going to get grilled on this by these NFL teams. I mean, you're about to walk into the most high-profile and high-pressure job interview that you're ever going to have trying to get drafted by an NFL organization. And it's just not the foot that you want to start uh, get started on. And – you know, it's, it's something that he's going to have to continue to answer for. So, again, just he's been in the headlines a lot lately, in the headlines for the wrong reasons. Again, I think Aaron Murray's insight was was very interesting, and I do recommend uh, taking a look to see that on The Athletic. Um, other rocky relationship this week. Uh, I know that we want to eventually this offseason we're going to talk a little bit about refs. They've been in the news quite a bit with the NFL and the NBA, and there's been a lot of talk. In, even in college basketball about independent contractors and this idea that, you know, how, how do you do officiating to uh, the the most effective way? And how do you do it in a way that ensures the most correct calls? We will get into all of that, probably do that next week on Power Hour. Um, but the other major headline this week, or at least interesting rant was something that Nick Saban said about NIL. Now, he has been in the headlines quite a bit about things he said about NIL over the years. You know, I immediately thought back to when he talked about how much how much Bryce Young was reportedly, supposedly making, even before he took the first snap at Alabama, that he was making over a million dollars. I thought back about last year, you know, what happened to him and Jimbo Fisher, and how he feels about the idea that you can quote, buy a recruiting class and buy talent. Um, here are some comments that were relayed to OutKick uh, this week. He was talking to head coaches in Alabama, and uh, Steve Norman, this is the one who uh, OutKick is citing here, he said, someone with the best corners in the country in high school came to me and asked if we pay them $800,000 for a player to sign here. I told him he can go find another place to play. I'm not paying a kid a bunch of NIL money before he earns it. Um, he also referenced another example of someone asking for their girlfriend to get into the law school. And internet sleuths kind of can guess at who, who that was and, and what ended up happening there. But Chris, um, obviously this is kind of like secondhand information, not entirely sure exactly what was said. But to me, like, this is very much in line with how Nick Saban has talked about NIL before and how he believes that he's fine with players cashing in on their likeness, you know, in, in kind of the way that it was intended, but just after actually playing, after actually having success and being against it in terms of a more traditional, like, recruiting inducement. So I, I put this on here for to talk about today because I just, like, I am so sick of hearing from coaches complaining about NIL in, in some form or another. And, you know, Tulane AD, Troy Dan had some good comments a couple days ago. Basically, like, whatever these numbers that are out there that you hear from coaches or people, like, 
they're mostly just nonsense, and they're they're being completely made up and thrown out there. We remember Pat Narduzzi said, I think Drake, Drake May was seeking, what, $5 million or, or something like that, and obviously he's staying in, in North Carolina. I just think we don't need to take coaches at their word for everything they say about NIL here for that. And the second part is, if a kid wanted his girlfriend to get into law school or wanted $800,000, like, okay, so what? what? What's the problem here? That, that That is the world we're in now. Nick Saban makes like 10 or $11 million a year. Look at the perks that come in these contracts, country clubs, cars, all these other things that you get with it. If a kid wants something and he can get it elsewhere, then that's fine. That's that that's that's good for him. Maybe it's a good decision. Maybe it's not. But like, in these situations, um, I, I don't like how it's often portrayed as the kids are in the wrong for wanting things, and that's often coming from coaches. And so I just wanted to comment on that because we we continue to see it more and more, and it just really uh, kind of annoys me. And like that's what an open market is. If you can get something somewhere else. You go and take it. So, you know, and it, well, and Alabama's unique too, by the way. Nick Saban can say we don't. Nick Saban can say we don't. We're not going to pay this much money for whatever because the Alabama pitches. Look, we're putting five to ten guys in the NFL every year. Like they don't need to win every bidding award to do something because they can offer guys a path to the NFL better than anybody else can. So Alabama's a little bit different in that sense too. But just you know, there's a lot of NIL reporting out there that's questionable that's kind of makes certain people look out to be bad for wanting things and I just I, I, I did I don't always love the framing of Nick Saban doesn't you know Nick Saban said a kid was ridiculous for asking for money and it's like let's not do that I think that that's totally a fair standpoint I, I also think that Nick Saban and his stance on this are probably not changing and i think that a lot of these coaches like it's just a friction point right now and they it's like when they complain about roster management it's like you get paid a lot of money to deal with this and to adapt to the times and the change and um you know some of them are just going to complain about doing it while still doing it um and on the last the last point i'll make about asking about like the law school and you know different favors i mean how many times for how many years chris have we seen players family members of highly touted recruits, oh, their mom or aunt or dad now work for the school or work around the school's program. I mean, there are your sons on the, or your sons on the coaching favors, staff. Yeah. I mean, there have been favors like that for a long time and for, you know, I don't even want to say package deals, but you know what I'm talking about. So again, a lot of the stuff that we, that is framed as new or bad around NIL is repackaged stuff that was already happening. Yes. So we'll talk a lot about NIL. It's a big off season topic. And again, we're, we're waiting to see if the NCAA will punish anyone for, N- for NIL violations. So we will continue to talk about that this off season, it will continue to be a rocky relationship in college football. All right, let's wrap up the show with the last call as we always do. This is a part of the show where we rant or rave, cheers or jeers. It's really whatever we might be doing as the bar is closing. You get one final round of drinks and you cheers to it and you get it off your chest. Um, it can be good or bad. Chris, I will let you take it away. Let's uh, let's hear your last call. Yeah, well, we mentioned the, the Senior Bowl a couple minutes ago. And one of my 
favorite things from college all-star games now that we're in that season is players plastering all kinds of school logos onto their helmet. So you have a Texas helmet, but oh, there's an Arkansas logo. There's an Eastern Michigan logo. There's a Southern Miss. There's a Michigan or a Michigan State logo. And I just think it looks so cool. And it, 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 from everything I understand, it's kind of an old tradition where players would basically exchange helmet decals with each other when they're kind of doing this together. And I just think it's always kind of a cool thing. It's fun to watch it. And you try to see how many you can recognize on a helmet or maybe some that you don't. And I just, some of those pictures were making the rounds uh, this morning. And I was like, you know what? I love this. I think this is a really cool thing that you just don't really get anywhere else in football. And so I just wanted to give a cheers to the helmets that have like 20 different logos on them. My cheers is I'm going to go outside of college football a little bit. I promise it's interesting. Uh, it is about North Carolina's new field hockey coach. If anyone would like to feel old, I just would like you to feel old with me. Aaron Matson is the most decorated player in Carolina field hockey history, a true legend in, in the sport. She is also 22 years old. She was born in 2000. Ugh. She graduated in December. And, um, you know, North Carolina's legendary field hockey coach is stepping down after 42 years. She was hired at age 23 as well. But they announced on Tuesday that Aaron Matson is now the head coach at North Carolina at 22. And obviously she's going to have a lot of support around her and they're going to, you know, staff up and support her. And she's really impressive if you ever gotten a chance to talk to her. But man, did that make me feel old seeing a head coach in the Power Five who was born in the year 2000. So this is both a cheers and a jeers to myself for feeling very old like, reading I that press release. I wrote about Will Healy when he got the Austin P job at 30. You know, the youngest coach in college football right now is Chris McCullough. I think he was 26 when he got the East Central job. But 22, going from player to coach, essentially, is wild. Like, I am fascinated to see how that's going to work. I think it's really cool. It makes me feel really old. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to pay attention to see if that works. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And she played uh, on four NCAA championship teams, five ACC championship teams. Uh, she is just truly incredible um, and a, a, the all-time leading scorer in ACC history and NCAA tournament play. I mean, like GOAT status for sure in field hockey, but fascinated by the hire uh, to hire a 22-year-old as your head coach of the North Carolina field hockey team. So congratulations to Aaron, and we can't wait to see how this unfolds, and we cannot wait to continue to feel very, very old um, looking at her birth date and her age. Uh, 2000, Chris, 2000. Like, I'm getting, I'm barely getting used to players being born in 2000 and beyond, and oh my god, now we have a, we have a head coach at North Carolina. It is the, crazy that hit me when i talked to players about ncaa football video game and a lot of them just like didn't remember it existing that was tough oof oof yeah that's there's there's certain things like i, I always like we have older colleagues who will talk about like yeah this player i covered like his son mm -hmm. is now playing college football or something right like i, I can see those are going to be old this was one was not expecting it but um really truly incredible and actually like my jaw dropped when i saw that hire um, so on that note, we will wrap things up and that will do it for this week's power hour. 
For Chris Benini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.